Everybody knows about the physical injuries people can sustain at work. Although these are important to consider, we tend to forget about some of the more mental injuries that can also occur. Hello, and welcome to Wellbeing. I'm Charlie Morell. I'm joined today by Megan Clark, an expert in psychological health and safety at the University of Newcastle. Thanks for coming in, Megan. Thanks, Charlie. Thanks for having me. What do we mean by psychological health and safety? Well, that's a very good question to start this podcast today, I think. And as you pointed out quite rightly, there is real understanding of what physical hazards are in a workplace. So say, for example, you're in an office style job, things that can give you wrist and neck pain are the sort of physical things like how your workstation is set up. Or similarly, if you're in a you know, job where you have to lift and carry stuff, we do things around helping people to understand what manual handling training is and minimising loads and reducing those risks. In a psychological health and safety space, it's exactly the same in terms of how we minimise harm for individuals in a, in a mental health for arena. Yep. So that's, um, you know, just giving it that sort of same analogy around health and safety and that risk assessment process. Great. So, so in the corporate world, what are some of the common areas that this is happening? Yeah. And look, it, it, this has been an area of research for quite some time and has always been in the legislation that employers should essentially minimise the risk of harm to their staff. And psychological health and safety has always been a part of that. And I guess in those, that re- those research areas, the sort of things that have emerged over the years are um, things like how an organisation might manage change, for example, whether that be a change in structure or implementing a new procedure or a piece of IT equipment, Um, if the communications and things are not well done around that change process, people can feel quite stressed in that environment. Similarly, things like um, work overload and autonomy and not having control over your work, those things can cause you additional stress. Absolutely. So one thing you mentioned there was autonomy. I want to go back to that. Um, What do you think that sort of role plays in psychological health and safety? Do you think that there are some risks with micromanaging and and that sort of management style? Yeah, look, and we talked about psychological health and safety, but there's also a term called psychological safety, which is actually how safe do you feel in the work environment? So it's more around the individual. And that's the bit that sort of connects us to autonomy and supervisor support and micromanagement. So if you feel safe in your workplace, if you can have honest conversations and you can rely on the support of your peers and supervisor, then you tend to take a few more calculated risks and therefore innovation grows in an organisation as well because you feel safe and supported. If you're feeling micromanaged or if you have a manager, um, a leader in your space that gives you too much work and you don't feel that you can express that, that's when the stress levels start to increase. Mm -hmm. I will stress that managers are people as well, though, (laughs) so it's not just about leaders um, doing the wrong thing. It's about how that environment operates the same way it would if you were looking at the physical harms in an environment as well. Absolutely. Um, I think that's such a common thing, forgetting that the managers also have their own mental health to look after and that sort of stuff. Yeah, that's exactly Um, right. And they don't always have the answers. And I think the challenge is lots of leaders actually feel like with this emphasis around mental health, that suddenly they become accidental counsellors and they have to know how to support somebody in a state of mental ill health. And I think the important part in that continuum is recognising that a member of staff is under pressure and, and sort of heading towards that end of being unwell, getting them the right supports, and then potentially sitting back and going, okay, what might have made them unwell? Mm. In the same way that if someone tripped and fell in the office and they'd hurt their knee, we'd send them off to get 
treatment. And then we'd go, okay, well, why did they trip in that space? And yeah. we'd look at the piece of carpet or whatever it was that might be the, the case. And, moment, and, yeah. and you can use a similar analogy for psychological health. It's just a little bit of a different approach in terms of what managers are used to thinking yeah. in that space. Given everything that's happening at the moment with COVID, um, there seems to be this transition to more people working from home. Yep. Keeping in mind psychological uh, health and safety and psychological safety, um, do you think that has had an impact? Do you think uh, we should be putting more of a focus on it because people are alone at home or do you think it's almost like a safety buffer for people being away from the office? That's a really good question. And actually, it could go either way, to be honest. And and whichever environment you're being asked to work in, whether it's an office that you come into or you're on the road as a um, salesperson, those things still need to be considered in terms of what risks you're under. So if I use an example of the person that's out there doing sales work and on the road, they're alone. They're in an environment that they have a limited level of control of the vehicle, but they can't control what's around them. It might be stressful in traffic. They're trying to get to appointments. And all those things are stresses that we should be looking at to manage. So, for example, if I know that the traffic is going to be bad at this particular time of day, well, then I should be working with my boss to say it's going to take me a little bit longer to get there and allowing for that time so you can manage that level of stress. Yep. The same thing happens when you're working from home. Yes, it's lovely to get up and go to your office in your slippers. <laughs> <laughs> I think we've all been guilty. We've all been there yeah. from time to time. But actually, it's really important to have that mental separation between what is home and what is work. And that can be a mental stressor as well for people. So covid on top of all the anxieties that people have felt in relation to getting ill itself, there is also this um, unknown, I guess, for, for people in terms of does my employer trust that I'm doing my work at home? Do I have the right connections with my team so I know what's going on? So you miss those serendipitous water cooler conversations when you're in an isolated environment. And yep. again, if a team can recognise those things as risks, they can set up controls to help support that. So, for example, if you've got a team that's um, working, let's call it a hybrid situation, so some people are in the office and some people are at home, you just make sure that those meetings that you have each morning to catch up or the stand-ups are then formulated in a way that means that everybody can still connect. You have the Zoom set up and you make sure that everybody can dial in and be part of those meetings in the morning. So, again, it's a risk assessment process of going, where do we think we're going to run into trouble here yep. and what sort of things can we do to minimise the risk of that becoming a problem? Yeah, so you touched on something there um, that I think is pretty interesting. You mentioned about people working from home. I mean, that's almost like full autonomy in a way. Um, do you think we should be, check as a manager, we should be checking in more with these people that are working from home and, you know, trying to get them a, a webcam so they can join meetings with a camera on so we can see their face and and pretend almost like they're in the building. Yeah. Look, there's, there's two parts to that conversation. One part is about um, businesses in general getting comfortable with people, with not being able to see people in an office environment because there's this assumption that if you're here, you're doing work. Yeah. But 
it can also be true that you can be here and not doing work. So, <laughs> so teams and leaders, again, need to understand how they start to manage for performance rather than manage for attendance. And that's yep. a big shift from a business perspective that. anyway. So yep. I'm not worried about whether you're sat in front of the computer for nine hours a day. I'm worried about what your output is and have you achieved the things that you wanted to achieve wherever it is that yep. you are in the work that you're doing. So that's one piece of that problem is understanding what am I expecting of my staff and what is my manager expecting of me and being clear on that. Yep. The other part that you're talking about is around human connection and what happened through COVID and thankfully for things like Teams and Zooms and all those things that we suddenly became very familiar with, even my grandparents knew how to Zoom a few <laughs> weeks in, um, is that we do have this new technology that allows us to connect more. Um, an example would be my daughter used to sit with the um, Zoom open all day with her best friend when she was schooling from home because they like to have that connection. Now, they weren't actually talking, they were doing their work, but like in a classroom, they would stick their head up and go, oh, hi, Ella, you know, what are you doing on this set question here? And what happens when you have people working from home is you lose that connection. So checking in more is not necessarily the answer, but checking in in a timely way might be the answer. So setting up some sort of rhythm, making sure that if you're the person working from home, you know what's going on and you can circle back with a peer and say, what happened in that meeting? I missed that one or whatever that might be. So there's this equal responsibility both from the manager and the worker to make sure that connection is maintained so you can keep an understanding of what's going on. Yeah. Okay. Um, On that as well, I um, have been doing a bit of research into some of the impacts that have been happening since covid Sort of happened and we transitioned to this working from home model and that sort of stuff. And one of the things that is apparent is there's been a quite a large increase in people that consume alcohol. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to chat about if you thought there's a distinct link between alcohol, your diet, um, all that sort of stuff, and psychological well being. Yeah. Look, it's not my area of expertise, so I'll caveat the response <laughs> with Absolutely. that much. And I'm a good consumer of that from time to time. Yeah. So that, that might make me an expert in that regard. Um, But look, I guess whatever your vice might be, and I say vice in a way that if it's, you know, constantly going to the fridge, then then it's whether that becomes a a support or a crutch for you or whether um, you actually have control over that situation. Look, there are people that are much better placed to have that discussion with you in another podcast, I think. But, you know, that whole idea of keeping that balance and that work-life balance and that well-being balance is really where people should be thinking about, not whether they consume too much or not enough <laughs> from you know what i've conversations with my friends and colleagues sometimes it's just more opportunistic yeah that, yeah you know, five o'clock rolls around and it's very easy <laughs> yeah. to go to the fridge <laughs> oh look i'll put my hand up now and say i am totally guilty of that uh, especially if it's a friday well i think dan murphy's can certainly yeah for that. <laughs> i know yeah absolutely when they introduce Rightly delivery yeah yeah Great. Uh, look, on the working from home stuff as well, yeah. um, we've, we have sort of touched uh, on how important it is to keep, your, keep in contact with your workers and yep. your staff. Um, I want to drill a little bit deeper. Mm-hmm. Um, I want to know, are there particular age groups, uh, maybe genders, um, even races, yep. anything like that that makes a difference with psychological health and safety? 
Look, there, there's lots of research into different fields of um, psychological or mental ill health. Um, there's been a lot of research done around um, farming communities and people that are in isolated areas. There's a whole lot of work around youth mental ill health. You know, as far as the statistics that, that come out around mental ill health is that at, in our lifetime, one in five of us will suffer from an episode of mental ill health. And wow. at any one time, um, there are people in our community and around us and in our workplace that are unwell. Yeah. Now, whatever that is on the spectrum of unwell um, is, is you know, something for the individual to work with. But I think what's what's really positive about this awareness is that people are more willing to talk about mental ill health in a way that we haven't been able to in generations before us. So, um, you know, I will draw on examples of, you know, being able to have better conversations with my children around what um, depression is and what anxiety is and support them in that way. And that raising of awareness helps us as well in the workplace because we can have those conversations. And, you know, it, it was very easy to come in from a weekend and said, I spent the weekend gardening and I've got a really sore back, but no mm. one would turn around and say, look, I've had a really tough weekend yeah. and, I'm, and I'm not feeling so well and on top of my game. And that's becoming more commonplace and I think um, is appropriate in terms of that respect. But in the same way that we would manage back pain, we need to sort of understand how we manage our own mental ill health and what support we seek for that as Absolutely. well. Absolutely. I, I think that is so important. And what you just said there is so true. Um <laughs> Countless times I've come back into the office and go on. I've had a really big weekend uh, working on my lawns, and no one sort of blinks an eye. Blinks an eye, and, <laughs> and, and then you know, if I came in and said I've just been really down all weekend, yeah, it's just such a different dynamic. It's a different conversation. It's and, totally and I think different. you know, as the recipient of somebody being you know in that situation where you'd come up to them and said I've been having a really bad day, it's again getting that confidence around those "Are you okay?" conversations. Yeah, and absolutely. and I guess you know that's been a big promotion in the last couple of years people have seen the are you okay campaign mm -hmm. and and a lot of that is really about becoming listeners good yeah. listeners yeah and you don't have to say any particular thing yep. but actually giving the person some time and some air time to to listen to just them just a really vent important. sort of do you yeah, find it helps vent and and i think you know one thing that we've lost the ability to do is be comfortable in silence mm, yeah I totally agree. And yep. silence allows somebody else to talk. Yeah. It, yeah, you, you are absolutely right. So going back to that with, um, I guess, roles and responsibilities, talking about the workplace, I think it's sort of assumed knowledge that a manager should have that duty of care to check mm -hmm. in with that person. But I want to talk about if you're in a team, do you think it's everyone should be responsible for, for checking in with each other, even if it is a bit of a formal conversation? Yeah. Pulling people aside and going, you know, are you okay? Yeah. I know you've had a really long weekend. Um, tell me about it. What's been going on? Yeah. And, and look, there's a, a, you know, lots of promotional campaigns that have happened in the physical space for, for safety where the campaign has been everybody has a responsibility for safety. And you do. Yeah. And the same applies in psychological health and safety as it does in, in a physical safety space. So if you see something that's out of sorts, yeah. then yes, you have a responsibility just, to do something about it. And yeah. what you've just described is the perfect way of doing it and saying, Charlie, I've noticed you're a bit quiet this morning. That's not like you to be, you know, usually a good chatter in the kitchen. Do you want to have a bit of a chat about that now? Or yeah. can you want to come and grab a coffee or something and yep. have a bit of a talk? So getting getting comfortable with that. Um, it's almost like the, your, your team or um, even your department, um, 
it should totally be irrelevant, right, yeah. when it comes to this sort of stuff. I, I personally think that um, the CEO of a company should be going to another person. They look a bit down. Um, are you okay? Yeah. That sort of stuff. And yeah. even vice and versa. And sometimes that is all people need is yeah. just to know that someone else is noticing yeah. and that, that someone else cares. And even if that means pointing them in the direction of your employee assistance service or back to their GP if it's something more significant or even to say, have you got someone that you can talk to about this yeah. is not a bad way to sort of open that conversation to getting them the right supports as well. So I want to talk about bullying um, and the part that it plays with psychological health and safety and psychological safety as well. Yeah. That happens, well, everywhere, uh, unfortunately. Yeah. Um, what can you comment on on around that sort of dynamic? What is bullying, what part does bullying play? Yeah. Look, and it, it's a very um, uh, difficult conversation. And, and again, organisations have been talking about bullying for, for a long time. And again, it is a very firm, firmly set into psychological health and safety. So by, by definition, bullying is described as repeated or unreasonable behaviour directed at an individual or group that causes harm to that, that person. Yep. So there's quite, you know, a, a good definition of, of what it is. And I guess some people go, oh, it's just the perception. They just think that they're being bullied. But the point is that situation is real for that individual, yeah. regardless of whether you think it's right or wrong. And so some of the challenges around bullying is actually getting to the heart of what that individual is, is seeing in, or experiencing in that situation. And again, what are the factors that are contributing to that? In some cases, and certainly in some case management that I've been involved in, the leader didn't even realise that they were having that impact on the individual because they hadn't had that brought to their attention yeah. before. So it is very much a two-way conversation. Now, I say that with a caveat again that there are, you know, extreme cases of bullying that do end up with serious consequences to those. But it always starts with um, how two people interact or, or don't, you know, don't interact, I guess, at that end of the spectrum. So yeah. cha challenging topic and I think you could almost do a whole podcast on bullying. I know, it, <laughs> when I was doing my research into this, I came across so many interesting things and it got me on this train of thought. I was just wondering if there is a link between workplace bullying and this concept of working from home. I haven't fortunately been the victim of bullying, mm. um, but I can only imagine this opportunity to escape and work from the safety of your own home for people who may be getting bullied must be great. Yeah. But that transition back to work must yeah. be really daunting. So I think the challenge that you're highlighting there, Charlie, is that, yes, that is an immediate control in terms of removing a person from the harm. But if you put it again in a physical context, it's like if you had a piece of machinery in a product line that was hurting people, cutting them. And so you just remove that person from that machine, but you let the machine yeah, keep going. Exactly. And then you don't bring them back in without going, well, why Why is this happening? Is this the way that they're approaching this piece of machinery? Or do we need to put some sort of guard there? Or do we need to change the way that that happens? And unless you actually think through those processes, you're still going to bring that person back into a space of, of harm. So yeah. removing might be one immediate control for the individual involved, but it doesn't solve the problem. Yeah. And then what 
can sometimes happen is that that ends up in a complaint environment Mm -hmm. and then it becomes really difficult to resolve because then it becomes a situation of somebody is right, somebody is wrong, somebody gets blamed instead of being a process whereby we go, okay, what caused the problem here? Again, I know it sounds trivial, but we don't go and blame the path if somebody trips over. We look at what the problem is and we fix the path or we fix, you know, provide some advice on not looking at your phone while you're walking down the path. So again, (laughs) I know it sounds very simplistic, but you actually need to think about what are the contributing factors to this and how can we minimise that risk with also supporting those individuals involved, both the person who's had to run away and escape at home and the leader who's going, something's going on here and I can't quite put my finger on it because Mary's not been back in the office for however many days. Yeah. Yeah. I think... um I think some managers and leaders would almost be unaware of that dynamic as well, um, and which is something I wanted to ask you about. Um, mm. It's about personal leave. Now, we're at a stage where if I get a runny nose uh, or a cough, I don't come to the office, I go and get a COVID test, um, and I work from home until I get the negative results back, I get better and I come in. Yep. But it's almost like a grey area with mental health. Um, where do you think we're at and where can we improve with personal leave and mental health? You are asking some very curly questions today, <laughs> And look, every organisation will have an approach to this, but yep. I guess personal leave is an employee benefit of their employment relationship if you want to get down to some foundational thumbtacks sort of stuff. And so that leave is there to ensure that the person is able to get well yep. and not um, impact others in a way that if you had a sniffly nose and you came in and you gave it to three of your colleagues, I'm not going to be happy as a leader because now my other three people are off. So the idea is that the leave is there to help you get better and to to protect those around you. Mental health is is no different, realistically. If if you are not functioning at the level that you should be in your workplace because there's good links between people's um, decline in mental health and physical accidents occurring as well because they're not concentrating and they're not, you know, thinking about what they should be on the job. If you're not supporting your own mental health, then the implications of that can be quite significant. So we should be taking the leave that we need to get ourselves well again, if that's the situation. I totally agree. But again, I'll caveat that because there's this real blur between what is an individual's responsibility and what's my workplace responsibility. Okay. And and that's the challenge because often employer employers say, here's some employee assistance program, go and get yourself better yeah. <laughs> without actually going, well, maybe we should be having a think about whether there's something in the workplace that we need to do here. So there's that bit, but there's also the bit that it might just genuinely be that that person's having a really rough time yeah. at home and they need some time off to go and fix that part of the risk that's occurring so that they can come back to work um, a better person and able to function. And what happens when people's mental health is declining is that they tend to react differently. Mm -hmm. So what might be a very simplistic team meeting turns into somebody providing a really odd response to a question that you think, oh, what was that all about? And and so then relationships and things decline as well. So it's a real ecosystem that you can't just sort of put things in a box and go, that's what it is. You have to think quite laterally. It sounds very – it's quite quite a complex 
um, sort of yeah, area. Yeah, complex but not unreasonable. Yeah. Like in, in the way that it's people can work through it that don't need to have degrees to work through it. You yeah. just need to put some wrap some common sense around some of those things. So um, moving on to uh, something else I wanted to ask you about, which is mental health first aid. I yeah. was wondering if you could explain sort of the concept of yeah. what that is and what that's um, all about. So mental health first aid is, as it says, on the tin, yeah. <laughs> basically. Um, it's a program that was um, put together to enable people to provide sort of a peer support and initial support for somebody that they can see is declining in mental health or having a mental um, episode in ill health. The really important thing around mental health first aid is it's not just like sticking a Band-Aid on something and sending somebody else off. You're actually asking the mental health first aider to also absorb the emotional um, output of the individual that they're talking to. So, mm-hmm. so employers that bring about a mental health first aid program also need to, um, you know, for want of a better phrase, make sure they wrap a lot of love around those mental health first aid officers. Yeah. So they have the ability to debrief and have the training that they yeah. need in order to provide that first aid in an effective way to their peers. Um, So it is a program whereby people come forward um, and train in mental health first aid and certainly um, for the university where I work, uh, we then give them the option about whether they would like to become a mental unidentified mental health first aider and in that context we've got a support group amongst those mental health first aiders that we continue to provide them information and advice so they feel equipped to have those conversations that's they're they're almost like superheroes in my (laughs) in my mind thank you i'm a superhero i'm a mental health first aider oh there you go um i just think that uh to take your time and effort and put it towards something like that is yeah. that is fantastic. Um, that's such a, a wonderful trait for another human being to have. Yeah. Um, so how- are all those voluntary capacities, though. I mean, it's, yeah. it's one of those things where, um, again, it's so lovely to see expanding into that role of, of people developing skills in, in that space. But, yeah, no different to your surf lifesavers and those people that volunteer there yeah, too. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I mean, even being the person to step up and and call out someone who's a bully or um, put your hand up and and ask someone if they're okay. It might be a small step outside of your comfort zone, but you've taken that step. And Mm. even that is an attribute of a great person. And I am all for that sort of stuff. Um, How rigorous is the the training to become a mental health first aider? It's uh, two full days face-to-face if you do it through Mental Health First Aid Australia. They do have an online program now, but it still requires a lot of um, pre-work. So you should be putting in that time to understand the um, topics that they're talking about. Um, But I would, would also add to that the same way, you know, with your first First aid and your surf life saving and all those other skills that that you get um, if you're going into those environments that it doesn't just stop with the first aid training. Yeah, it's actually the application of that. Yeah, um, and generally for mental health first aid officers, that just starts with being. Um, mindful of the conversations that you have day to day when yeah. you're not in a first aid environment that you, um, you know, you think about, you know, did I did I feel comfortable with that conversation? Did I listen well? And reflecting on um, what is the acronym, which is ALGI, which I can't remember all the bits off the top, <laughs> but there is a, you know, a sequencing of, of how you should approach um, mental health first aid conversations if you're in that role at that time. Lovely. And also being a human being helps. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. 
And in terms of further resources and stuff, if people want to get more educated in this in this space, um, yeah. the the psychological safety versus uh, psychological health and safety, yeah, how can people oh, learn gosh, about there it? There are so many resources <laughs> out there, and at the risk of pl- plugging another podcast, there is a podcast called the Psych Health and Safety Podcast. Yep, um, it's only started up this year, but I have found that really good in yep. terms of um, helping people to understand the basics, and certainly the first and second episode. Will give people foundations in the difference between psychological health and safety, psych safety, and then they have some great speakers who are are the experts in this field, yeah. <laughs> not me. Um, so that podcast in itself is great. Um, there's fantastic resources on things like Safe Work New South Wales. They have building mentally healthy workplaces as a framework, really good foundations for anything from small business right through to big corporates if they want to get started yeah. in building mentally healthy workplaces. And then there's things like Safe Work Australia have endorsed a tool called People at Work, yep. um, which is actually a survey tool which helps to identify some of those psychological hazards okay and then they have a whole bunch of resources that help businesses to actually go well i've identified this hazard what actions can i take to start addressing those so great practical toolkit yeah. um, for businesses to to get their hands on and if you've got 20 employees or more um, that's free for you to access and, and use in that space as well so that is uh quite a lot of resources yeah um, can we link them in the bottom somewhere uh, I- <laughs> I'm, I'm sure I can make it happen. <laughs> um, no one has an excuse uh, to not l- learn about this sort of stuff, no. and it's so important. Um, Even your sites like Beyond Blue and Black Dog yeah. Institute, they have great services out there. There's Kids Helpline, lots of different age brackets that you can use. Even things like cyberbullying, the, the Australian government has great sites around that and parental um, support yep. um, for cyberbullying as well. So th- there really isn't an excuse. There, there is a lot of information that's very practical and very useful. Out yeah, there. absolutely. Well, Megan, thank you so much for your time. Thanks very much, Charlie. Our guest today has been Megan Clark, Associate Director of Wellbeing, Health and Safety from the University of Newcastle. Thanks for listening. I'm Charlie Morell, and all of us at Wellbeing wish you well. <laughs>